Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, it's aliens, UFOs, men in black, and just a little bit of magic. It's Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Desert Center, California. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Welcome to episode four of season three of the show. Uh, I'm back. Coffee is back. And just fair warning, the cat is on fire tonight. Uh, Charlie is just running back and forth at full speed from one room to the other with no real destination or goal in mind. So we'll see how long we'll see how long he does that before he gives up. Uh, but yeah, that's about it on the cat update. Tonight is going to be a rabbit hole of an episode. These were two epi- two episodes. These were two stories, two towns I wanted to do because on the surface they are early 1950s contactee stories. Granted, very different types of contact was had between the two, but when you kind of delve into both of them, you see that there's a little more esoteric stuff going on with uh, Albert Bender and Georgia Damsky, which is basically the people we're going to talk about tonight and the towns that they, uh, their experiences came from. And that is something I am starting to find out or notice more and more as I look into stuff. Like, I've always had an interest in this stuff, and... I've, you know, and ever since starting the show, of course, I've read so many more books. I've done so much more research just for the show that it's really broadened the spectrum 
about this stuff to me in the last year or so. The podcast is almost a year old. Like, I think March 21st, something like that. March 20th, something like that. But um, I'm noticing that going back and looking at some of this older stuff, uh, the Men in Black stuff, the Contact East stuff, so much of it has roots in kind of well, magic, kind of esoteric circles. And we're going to talk about uh, those rabbit holes in depth tonight. Uh, going to be a lot of, a lot of uh, side quests from the notes tonight, I think. But I think it's going to be a fun episode. It's probably going to be a pretty uh, in-depth big one. But that's what we have to look forward to tonight. No big updates. Um, yeah, I think... We're just going to get into it, so I am going to play a promo from uh, a Big Heads Media podcast, Three Beers In. We will be back after that, and we'll start in on Bridgeport, Connecticut, and the story of Albert K. Bender. Hi, everyone. This is Clint. This is Ross. This is Joel. This is Cutter. This is Tony. From Three Beers In. A proud member of Big Heads Media Network. Each episode, we review local Austin craft beer and talk about Club of Bananas. References I don't get. And Academy Award winner Matthew McConaughey. So tune in, crack open a beer, and hang out with us. Find us on BigHeadsMedia.com, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or on 3BeersInPodcast.com. This is the podcast. Let's get into it. Um, like I said, this is a story. He's not so Bender isn't the first person to, quote unquote, be visited by Men in Black. There were a couple of other reports before then, but I think they can kind of be chopped up to like actual government agents, actual FBI, actual this, actual that, or maybe just a uh, just a crazy UFO guy who wants to talk to another crazy UFO guy. But for some reason, it's going about it in a very esoteric way. The Bender case, I think, is really the first one where there's more going on. There's more supernatural going on than the Men in Black reports before it. It's also kind of the case that becomes the catalyst for it. It The name will eventually derive from this story and a lot of the tropes that we see with uh, more kind of out there Men in Black stories come from Albert Bender and Bridgeport, Connecticut. So that's where we're at. The town of Bridgeport, Connecticut is an eastern seaport town that boasts a population of 144,900. P.T. Barnum, founder of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, took up residence, residence there and was even mayor for a year. The Frisbee Pie Company was in Bridgeport, making the town the default origin of the Frisbee. Also, the first subway opened its doors in 1964. $5 footlongs and gravity-defying toys were not the only first to come from Bridgeport, Connecticut. The small town is also the birthplace of the dreaded Men in Black. The story begins with one Albert K. Bender. Bender was born in Duria, Pennsylvania on June 16th of 1921. He went to high school in West Piston, Pennsylvania, which, if you remember, is a previous episode back from uh, Season 1. After serving in the Air Force during World War II, he found himself living in his stepfather's attic in Bridgeport. Bender had a huge interest in the paranormal and UFOs, and also in the occult and magic. Like, he liked to decorate the walls of the attic room that he lived in with uh, just, like, kind of Halloween decorations and all of that. He read up on black magic. He read up on all sorts of esoteric stuff. Not just UFOs, but UFOs was kind of probably his main, main interest. In 1952, he founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau, or the IFSB. And I'm going to premise this now. I bet at least once I'm going to flip the S and the F around when I use the abbreviation and not catch it. So, just fair warning. This would be the first civilian organization to study UFOs in the world. 
The IFSB grew fast. It quickly attracted members from all over, most notably writer Gray Barker, electronics expert Dominic Lucchesi, and photographer Augie Roberts. It would be these four men that our story revolves around. The IFSB chugged right along, starting in 1952 and into 1953. The group spent its time collecting and investigating UFO reports and publishing its own quarterly newsletter called Space Review. As the success of the ISSB grew, so did the strange things around Bender. He allegedly got telepathic messages and strange phone calls, which is pretty on the par MIB stuff. In November of 1952, he noticed he was being watched by a being with red glowing eyes at a local movie theater. In early 1953, Bender decided to try an experiment. In an issue of Space Review, he wrote a letter to his readers. Albert instructed his readers to memorize and recite silently, kind of like in their head, the following message. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet Earth. We of IFSB wish to make contact with you. We are your friends and would like you to make an appearance here on Earth. Your presence before us will be welcomed with the utmost friendship. We will do all our power to promote mutual understanding between your people and the people of Earth. Please come in peace and help us in our earthly problems. Give us some sign that you have received our message. Be responsible for creating a miracle here on our planet to wake up the ignorant ones to reality. Let us hear from you. We are your friends. He called this World Contact Day. He hoped the massive telepathic energy from hundreds of people all resigned his message at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on March 15, 1953 would open a path to the beans that were behind these flying saucers. After his experiment, the strange only got stranger for Bender. He continued to receive telepathic messages, only now they seemed to be much more threatening than before, ordering him to stop his research. He started smelling sulfur and seeing a strange yellow mist that would sometimes take the shape of a human form. He would also see blue lights and orbs that would sometimes turn into human form as well. And when he went to investigate them, they would be kind of a blue light coming through the door. He'd go investigate, open the door, and there would be an orb, and it would kind of manifest into this human shape. Then, one night in July of 1953, Bender awoke to a sudden case of sleep paralysis. He had been visited by three men in black suits and hats. These beings were floating several feet off the floor. The MIB told him that they would reveal their secrets to him simply because no one would ever believe him. They gave him some sort of coin and told him that they could be contacted by reciting the word Kandik into a radio. So, right there, it's very... It just reeks of kind of, you know... It doesn't reek of the normal kind of MIB stuff. I mean, yeah, they were weird. They float off the floor. They look like MIBs. But then you get this coin and a word of power, really, for the most part, to recite into a radio. And contact them, he did. This time, he had what he described as an abduction experience. Bender claims he was taken aboard a spaceship and was shown and told a great many things. Some of what he was told was rather menacing. The MIBs told him that they could take over the minds of people and have infiltrated our society. He was also told that a point in the Milky Way galaxy was the Great Central Stillness and that the central point was so powerful that nothing could approach it for light years. This is pretty interesting because it turned out to be true. A year later, Joseph Posse and a team of scientists discovered the true galactic center of the Milky Way. They pinpointed the location based off power radio emissions from Sagittarius. Great central stillness and its powerful center also hints at a supermassive black hole which would not be confirmed until 1974. So if Bender is to be believed, he kind of got the, the straight poop, if you will, on black holes and the center of our galaxy before they were quote-unquote discovered by, by us. After these visits and the knowledge he gained, it was obvious Bender had become scared of the phenomenon he was experiencing. He started distracting himself from the UFO mystery. He started becoming elusive when it came to the discussion about the topic, saying he was no longer interested. 
In the October 1953 issue of Saucer Review, he wrote this editorial. After serious consideration to all aspects of involved in the operation of the International Flying Saucer Bureau, it has been decided to completely reorganize. Effecting January 1st, 1954, we will no longer be known as the International Flying Saucer Bureau, which specialized only in the mystery of the flying saucer. And I have that in my notes that it's from uh, Saucer Review, but that actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that might have just been a letter that he wrote to members of, of the Bureau. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on that detail. Uh, this sudden disinterest and change in his behavior puzzled Bender's colleagues, Baker, Duchesne, and Roberts. They were told of the visits by the MIBs, but for a long time, Bender held back on most of the information. However, as all this was going on, they too found themselves in a few odd situations. And at first, these don't seem to be related, but knowing what we know now, there's something very MIB about these experiences. The first involves one of Gray Barker's business cards. He was given these cards by Bender since he was chief investigator. He only gave out about half a dozen of these cards to his close friends, so he was puzzled when an FBI agent came knocking on his door asking about one of his business cards. The agent asked him if he knew a man. He gave Barker a name, but Barker didn't write it down and he forgot it. From Florida, Barker told him that he did not. The agent relayed that this man had an epileptic seizure and one of Barker's cards was found among his possessions. Barker didn't know how the man got his card. He knew damn well he didn't hand it out to anyone in Florida. Then there was the Curielovic case. A man named Mark Kirilovic submitted a photo of a strange thing in the sky that he photographed over Lake Erie. He didn't notice the object until after the photos were developed. Roberts, who was a photographer, so he was kind of in charge of studying the photographs, studied the picture and found the object to be nothing but lens reflections. The case was nothing special, but sometime in the late summer of 1953, Duchesne lost it. Roberts was contacted by the Hudson County Police Department in New Jersey, which I believe was their was Lucchesi and uh, Roberts' kind of local police department. I think they, they both lived out there. Uh, by Lieutenant Kellinger, saying that they had found the report. When Roberts told Lucchesi this, Lucchesi insisted he hadn't lost it, but he went to but when he went to pull it from a desk drawer, it was not there. When the two went to the local police station to find Kellinger, he wasn't there and they didn't get the report. They tried back after the weekend, and not only was Killinger still not there, but after the department got him on the phone, he said he had no idea what they were talking about. A couple of days later, a car from the police department stopped by Robert's home and gave him an envelope containing the missing report. And those may not be connected, those might have nothing to do with it, but it is a very kind of uh, goose-chasey thing that sometimes happens when you start looking into this stuff like that's very reminiscent there's a lot of similarities between that and what like john keel would go through a lot you know just just chasing his own tail and going around he getting you know stuff from strange people and then those people say no i have no idea what you're talking about i never got a report so i don't know if this is just kind of this this weird mib energy this, this kind of dust off from Bender affecting these other guys too. But I just, I wanted to include those couple of tidbits because I thought that they were very interesting and they, you know, they, they're, they reek of men in black kind of tomfoolery. As 1953 wore on, Barker, Roberts, and Lucchesi tried time and time again to get Bender to talk about his experiences, but he never really opened up to them. Lucchesi and Roberts even interviewed him. His answers to most of their questions were, unfortunately, I can't answer that. And so, like, when earlier when I'm talking about them kind of floating off the floor and orbs and sulfur and things with red eyes, he didn't really tell them any of that jazz. All he really said was, like, do you, does everyone like how I'm just resurrecting all these kind of 1920s slang terms? Um, he didn't really tell them about all that. So... He told, he told them stuff like they, they're shushing him up, they confiscated copies of Saucer Review, they confiscated a picture that he had drawn for Gray Barker's own newsletter, 
which seemed very stupid to Barker because he's like, I've already published that. I'm like, that's out, out there. Like, you can get it. And I'll, I'll post a picture in the show notes. So, you know, he just kind of told them very, you know, he kind of made up a story almost of like, and maybe they did, they did take that stuff, but, you know, what he told them was very milk toast to what he claims to have actually been experiencing. The October 1953 issue of Saucer Review would be the last issue, and it might have been the November issue. I can't really suss that out. Bender closed down the newsletter and the IFSB stating, The mystery of flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we are very sorry that we have been invited in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. Gray Barker would go on to write a book called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which I did read for this episode, in which he tells the story from his perspective of Bender and even finds that he wasn't the only researcher who was being scared off from studying UFOs. He came up with a range of ideas as to where these MIBs may have come from, and over the years, other ideas have popped up as well. Let's go through some of them. Were they men from the government? And so if so, what about the sulfur and the floating and the orbs and the blue light and all that stuff? Like, I don't know, maybe that was all part of the we got to scare this guy out from looking at the UFOs. Let's really go. Let's really go for it. Let's get some special effects in here. I don't know. It seems a little, a little much for me for them to just be regular guys. Were they indeed beings from a different planet or perhaps a different dimension, scaring people who got too close? And actually, it's kind of funny. Like, I like Gray Barker. That book is a great book. Keel's books are great books. Barker and Keel even though their books have been around since like the 60s, the 70s, the 50s, um, they still hold up. I mean, yeah, when you read it, you know, there's some outdated terminology and outdated technology, because obviously, because that was written in like 1954. But when I sit there and I read a Keel book or I read a Barger book, I don't feel like I'm reading like an outdated book. I feel like I'm reading a kind of a contemporary book, albeit with some, you know, some outdated technology and terms here and there but he has a he has kind of a chapter about some guy who is going around saying that these things are kind of from another dimension and that there's other you know and he kind of laughs it off but this was before I mean this would have been years before I can't remember his name but the guy that sings in the eels the band the eels his dad is essentially the guy that kind of put string theory together and that there are, you know, uh, alternate universe of alternate universe out there and different dimensions and all this great stuff. So that kind of turned out to be true. And in this book, you know, he is kind of, he takes a chapter where he's like, this guy, this guy's talking crazy. But now when you look at it, it kind of, with what we know now, it makes more sense than it did in 1954. And that, I don't know, that one gave me a chuckle. Uh, were they possibly Darrow's from the Hollow Earth, i.e. the Shaver Mystery? So, back in like the mid to late 40s, like 46, like right before the Kenneth Honor sighting, right before Roswell, before all that, there was a man named Richard Shaver who was getting like communications from his welding equipment for, uh, in a secret language that he had decoded from what he called Darrow and Tarot these beings from the hollow earth. So I think like the Darrow were kind of the, you know, the bad guys and the Tarot were supposed to be the good guys. But he took the story to uh, Ray Palmer, who was publishing amazing stories at the time. And that was kind of like a pulp fiction magazine. Like they didn't do kind of, you know, true accounts. of. So what they did was they published it as fiction, but according to Palmer and, and Shaver, it wasn't fiction, but that was the only way at the time they could. They thought they could get the story out without, you know, messing around with it too much. And I and I think at the time, Bender had a little bit to do with Amazing Stories. I think he was kind of helping with something, so he had a bit of a connection there. And um, if you harken back to earlier, I said that 
Chesney and Roberts interviewed him about this experience, and he basically said, I can't answer that, to almost all of his questions. But one of them that they did ask was very specific to beings in the Earth, and I believe his answer was, I can't answer that, but he hesitated and had a weird look on his face when they asked him that. And so here's, here's where I'm going to go off on a big old tangent. Like, Hollow Earth stuff is like big old kind of esoteric thought. There's actually a David Bowie song who, David Bowie, if you know, is was a pretty big kind of chaos magician called Oh You Pretty Things. And, you know, everyone listens to that song and it's a great song. But when you sit down and you really like look at the lyrics of it, it's about beings from the Hollow Earth that are coming to try and take us over. So that's always kind of been in those magic circles that you know, those legends of beings from the hollow earth. Is it possible that they were conjured? After all, Bender was into the occult, and he did study magic to some extent. Could his World Contact Day experiment have been some sort of ritual, complete with incantation? After all, his message does read like a modern version of the conjuration to call forth any of the aforesaid spirits from the lesser key of Solomon. Uh, so I... I'm not going to read that incantation here for two reasons. One, it's got a bunch of like super old esoteric magic names that I cannot pronounce. And two, I, I'm not going to summon something. Uh, so yeah, we're just not going to do that. But there's a great blog from uh, Liminal Room who also did some great Hellier stuff and like did a cipher, uh, as, you know, where you could type in and get uh, secret cipher values, all that Hellier stuff. He did a great review on that, and it's a, it's, a, it's a nice little blog. He wrote a big article about Bender and about how this might have been a whole magic thing, and that's where I pulled some of this stuff from. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes, and you can read all through that, and he's got, he's got the incantation in there, and he really goes into it. It's a great little article. But that, you know, that's kind of where I think I'm at with this. Like, he goes... One, so here's why I think that the MIB were more than just aliens, or if they were aliens at all. I think that he might have conjured something, call it a, maybe he made some thought forms with this weird world contact day thing, or maybe he conjured some sort of entity that he shouldn't have and had no idea how to control it, had no idea how to do anything with it, because he comes up in that, in that song, in that one editorial and says, hey, we're not going to talk about flying saucers anymore. Not, I'm going to close it down. So to me, when I read that, I go, oh, he's he's now on the thing like, oh, aliens aren't, it's not aliens. I have conjured something. This isn't what we think it is. Why are we talking about flying saucers when we should be talking about this? Like, I think that was the truth that he was trying to get to was, I've figured it out. These things are like entities that are being conjured by magic. But if I say that, even even now that sounds out there, right? Think about saying that in like 1954. Did you do it? Yeah, that's weird, right? So he couldn't. And then maybe he conjures these things and they just, you know, they tell him all this stuff. So he has to come up with a little bit of a cover story, make it seem more alien flying saucer centric than it usually is. But is going to go, hey, in that next issue, we're going to break it and we're going to change the tide. But then something happens where he decides to just drop it all. Maybe he's in too deep. So he decides to just kill it all, wash his hands of it, and move on. However, years later, Bender would publish his own book on the subject entitled Flying Saucers and the Three Men. He would later marry a woman named Betty Rose, and they would move to Los Angeles. He passed away on March 29th of 2016. He was 94, so... In the end, it doesn't look like the Men in Black got him because he made it to 94. And if you are ever in Bridgeport looking for Bender's home, you won't find it at 748 Broad Street where it used to stand. A highway now occupies that space. And just remember, if you go there looking for Men in Black, they may just end up looking for you. And that is... I mean, it's a story... I'm sure everyone is... If you're listening to this show, you have some semblance of the Bender story, but... There's some more uh, cud for everyone to chew over that story. But let's uh, 
Let's do a boom and come back and talk about uh, George Adamski and his experiences out in Desert Center, California. The tiny town of Desert Center, California is a place that is literally in the middle of nowhere in the Colorado Desert. It would be here on November 20th of 1952 that the beginning of the UFO contactee movement would begin. Desert Center has a rather interesting origin story. A man named Stephen Ragsdale, way back in 1915, was on his way from Phoenix to LA. In 1915, this was a long and lonely journey on a road primarily made out of sand. On the way to LA, his car broke down near somewhere called Grundyke's Well. It was well, a well, hand dug by Bill Grundyke himself. Bill helped Steve by giving him food and shelter while his car was repaired. On his way back from Los Angeles, Ragsdale bought the land near the well and set up a small service station with his wife Linda providing food and drink. And even though it was an out of the way place, it provided a necessity for travelers of that lonely road. He called his outpost Desert Center. In 1921, US Route 60 was announced, and even though the new highway took most of the customers away from Desert Center, small town remains to this day with a population of 204. I'll get back to Desert Center in a little bit, but let's talk about George Adamski. Adamski was born in Brunberg, King of Prussia in the German Empire in, in 1891. When he was just two years old, his family immigrated to New York. As Adamski grew older, he made his way further and further west. He was a maintenance man at Yellowstone National Park and then moved to a flour mill in Oregon as well as working in a concrete factory in California. In the 1920s, George became increasingly interested in occultism, religion, and theosophy, mainly neo-theosophy. So look into that if you want to. Not really like, like I said, great father for the show. I, I think I've touched on it before about like Madame Blavatsky and all that they you know the nazis took a lot of her ideas and twisted and turned them into their ideology but he was into he was into that stuff by the 30s he had become quite the figure in the california cult culture he went around teaching his own views on religion he called these views the universal progressive christianity and also something called universal law it would be in 1940 that Adamski, along with his wife and a few friends, would move to a ranch near Polymer Mountain, which is about a three-hour drive west of Desert Center. The group moved there to continue their studies into religion and occultism. And you can kind of see, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't call maybe George Adamski a cult leader, a cult leader, but you can see that he has a following. And now they're all kind of together. In the 40s, Adamski began looking to the skies and began seeing UFOs. He also began showing the world photos of these strange craft. They sometimes look like a long cigar-shaped craft, which I believe he would call these kind of like the mother ships, the bigger ships. And then there were these smaller ones that were the much more kind of classic saucer shape, dome, bridge type of thing on top. As time went on, Adamski's alleged UFO sightings would start to meld into his religious teachings, growing his following over the years. Then, in 1952, something happened out in the desert. Adamski and six colleagues headed out near Desert Center to look for UFOs. As the story goes, the group first saw a large cigar-shaped craft shortly after lunch. Adamski and two others ventured further into the desert in hopes of getting better photographs. Adamski soon found himself alone as he walked through the desert taking pictures of the craft through his telescope. After a while, the large cigar craft left, but moments later a smaller scout craft came into view. While watching the scout ship, Adamski saw a being inside, beckoning for him to come closer. Soon the two met on the desert floor. Using telepathy and hand signals, the strange being told George his name was Orthon, and he was a Venusian, from the planet Venus. Orthon is described as about 1.6 meters in height, with long blonde hair and very tan, very smooth skin. He wore a brown one-piece suit with matching belt and red shoes. 
Orthon refused to be photographed and even asked for the photo plate from Adamski's camera, which Adamski gave him. Adamski did not feel afraid. In fact, it was quite the opposite. George is quoted as saying, The presence of this inhabitant of Venus was like the warm embrace of great love and understanding wisdom. Orthon and Adamski had a short conversation. It mostly centered around the planet Earth. Orthon told Adamski that there were already many Venusians living among us on Earth. They were keeping an eye on us because of our warlike nature and the testing of our nuclear weapons. Of the nuclear weapons, Orthon told George that they were upsetting the harmony of the universe. After their talk, Orthon boarded his ship and shot off towards the sky. Adamski claimed that he took a plaster cast of Orthon's shoe impressions, which contained strange symbols. Adamski would go on to say that Orthon stopped by to return his photo plate. When he developed the photos, he found more symbols on some of the pictures. As time went on, Adamski's claims became more and more outrageous. He claimed he was taken on journeys through space, where he saw the dark side of the moon and the canals on Mars, as well as Venus. In 1962, Adamski said that he had been invited to an interplanetary conference on Saturn. In 1963, he claimed to have had a secret meeting with Pope John Paul XXII, where he received a Golden Medal of Honor. However, as time went on, more and more holes would be poked into his stories. Many claimed his pictures were just that of surgical lamps or parts from a chicken coop. Uh, and in the 60s, satellites gave us photos of the moon and later Mars. Many, but not all, of Adamski's claims of what the moon and various planets looked like turned out to be false. Because I think now we know that, like, Venus is, like, completely inhospitable to us, you know, full of, like, acid rain and just, you know, atmosphere that we can't breathe. But that doesn't mean that some other life form evolved in a different way that can live on that. Um... And there have been some astronauts that have come through and said, like, you know, they have they've described similar things on the other side of the moon as to what Adamski claims to have seen. So take what you will with what he said with a grain of salt. George Adamski died of a heart attack on April 23rd, 1965, after giving a UFO lecture in Washington, D.C. Despite what you may think of Adamski's claims, his story of what happened at Desert Center opened up the UFO contactee movement, and even though he wasn't the first to claim he had had communication with otherworldly beings, he was the first to go public, and the floodgates opened for many more to come forward with their experiences. There's not much to see or do in Desert Center, California, but if you ever find yourself there, look up to the skies, and you may just spot a UFO. And I, I don't know really what to make of Adamski. Um, yeah, you look at the pictures. I'll put one in the show notes. It, it does just kind of look like a lamp. But it also kind of doesn't look like a lamp. Like, maybe you painted it. I don't know. But he has a lot of them. And there are, like, even, like, the big cigar shapes, I think, are a little are more compelling pictures. Because you can't really go, oh, that, that is a surgical lamp. Or that is a light from a chicken coop or whatever. But once again, it kind of goes back to... What were they doing, right? He was into the occult. He was into the esoteric. Like, did they conjure this being? Did they conjure these things? And thinking that they're beings from space, and because they've put that intent into it, they've put that energy into it, they've created this tulpa. They've created this thought form that has come to them and is showing them what, you know, what they've made it. But they don't know, you know, like... It, it's always that. It used to be fairies, and then it was contactees and UFOs and men in black, and now it's like interdimensional beings. And it's the, it's the same phenomena. It just keeps changing. And I don't think we're at the point to where we know quite how to tap into it. Um, it certainly is a big rabbit hole to go down. And the more and more I look into UFO cases and stuff like that, the more and more esoteric and magical they seem to become there's a great book uh it's not fodder for the show because it takes place well it doesn't really take place in the town but uh nick redfern's uh book uh final events which i think i've talked about on the show before 
is a good read to kind of uh, start thinking about UFOs maybe in a different way than a lot of other people have tried to think about them before. And those are those are our towns, Desert Center and Bridgeport. Uh, I hope that this episode has given uh, a rabbit hole for you guys to kind of get down and look into and maybe look at things in a different way than you've been looking at them. Or maybe not. Maybe uh, I'm full of complete horseshit. I don't know. But it's fun nonetheless, right? So we're going to take an intermission. New music tonight called uh, Lights in the Sky. So have a listen at that. And I'll be back, of course, with the local headlines. So there you go, uh, a new track that started out just kind of being an ambient thing that was supposed to uh, <laughs> induce thoughts of seeing lights, strange lights in the sky, but quickly evolved into a dance mix. But I really dug it, so I went with it, and now here we are. But we're also here with the local headlines. Uh, two of them are both about things that are washing up on shore. I actually could have made this a a threesome of things washing up on shore, but I decided to break it up with a Bigfoot story at the for the last one. But our first one is from uh, the Inverness Courier, 
by Val Sweeney. Speculation that mystery skeleton washed up on beach during storm Syria is Loch Ness Monster. A gigantic skeleton washed up on the Aberdeenshire beach during a storm has promoted online speculation over what it could be, including the suggestion it might be Nessie. A photograph of the carcass was posted on social media in the wake of the storm Syria, which brought strong wind gusts into the whole of the UK. Hundreds of people have joined in the debate about what the mystery object might be via the community group Fubar News. Suggestions include the skeleton of a whale, while other ideas include a saltwater crocodile and the vertebrae of a brontosaurus or a Dilopicus. Other contributors joined in the fun, reckoned it was a rarely seen deep sea haggis or Chinese New Year's dragon. Various people suggested it was Nessie. Brian Ingram said Nessie escaped to the sea, but then came to a sticky end. Emma Louise Bolin had a similar view. Nessie could not adapt to salt water, she said. Uh, and then there is a picture of it. And it's kind of a... It is a strange picture, but it, it reminded me of my youth. Not really. Like 10 years ago. So, a while back, I started a paranormal blog. Back... back Back when that's what you did was when you started a blog. And uh, no one read it. No one read it. Except for some weird guy who would always like leave comments and they were just long diatribes about UFOs and how just, you know, a guy who probably needed some sort of mental help. But I did write one article about a news story about uh, a strange sea monster skeleton washing up on shore. And by far that was the biggest story ever on that blog. Like, even the day if I could go back in, which I probably could if I really wanted to, and look at the analytics, it's like a couple hundred views on this, a couple hundred views on that. And that thing has like 100,000, 200,000 views. Uh, but it turned out to be like an art installation. This guy would go around, he would make these kind of dead sea creatures, and then he'd sneak off into the night on a beach somewhere and set them up. It might be this, but this thing looks a little more organic it doesn't look like someone built it or put it together in an art. Like it doesn't look like a piece of art. Um, it's a pretty, it's an interesting picture to take a look at. I'm going to keep an eye on it and see if anything more comes over if they identify it or what goes on with it. So that is a washed up on the beach story number one. Uh, washed up on the beach story number two. Once in a million ghost ship from Africa coast washes up on the rocks in Cork. A one in a million, and uh, this is from the Irish Examiner. I do not see a author on this. Oh, Noel Baker. So the reason why that happened, if anyone cares, is I use a Safari and I use the reader view on these news stories because it cuts out, like it just gives you the text and the pictures. So it cuts out all the advertisements and stuff. And sometimes it cuts off uh, important stuff like the author. So I apologize for that weird kind of digression, that weird uh, stalling tactic while I tried to find the author's name. A one in a million ghost ship first spotted floating off the African coast six months ago has washed up on the rocks in Ballycotton in a quarter county. The 77 meter MV Ulta cargo ship, which was sailing under a Tanzanian flag, was spotted by a jogger this morning at around noon. The Waterford Coast Guard confirmed that it had checked out the vessel, which, a spokesman said, was firmly caught on the rocks of Ballycotton, and it confirmed that it was not polluting the nearby area and that no one was on board. It's quite uncommon, the Coast Guard spokesman said, adding that this current location was almost certainly due to Storm Dennis, and that is the most likely to come around last night. While its current location comes as a huge surprise, there is also a mystery as to how the cargo ship built in 1976, came to be floating around the Atlantic Ocean without anyone on board. Last September, it was reported that the UK Royal Navy Davenport-based HMS Protector had come across the MV Alta in the mid-Atlantic. It emerged that in 2018, the ship, some 1,300 miles southeast of Bermuda, with 10 crew on board. It was reported that all the crew were rescued, but efforts by marine sources to find out who threw a speculation that it may previously have been hijacked at least once, if not twice, over its lifetime. 
The Irish Coast Guard believe the ship is now safely snagged on the rocks, although what happens to it now is unsure. If it did begin to float again because of another storm or extremely high tide, it could also pose problems. Among other interests taken of Ballycotton, RNLI lifeboat operations manager Don Hunt said, this is one in a million. It has come all the way up from the African coast, west of the Spanish coast, west of the English coast, and up to the Irish coast. I have never, ever seen anything abandoned like that before. Mr. Tatton said it was a wonder how it had not been detected by one of the fishing vessels off the south coast before it pitched up on the rocks. His understanding is that the efforts were being made to recover who owns the ship, but for now, its new home is the coast of East Cork. And, uh, like I said, we're going to do a Bigfoot story, a good old Bigfoot sighting. Now, this one is from the Beacon Journal via the Cambridge Daily Jeffersonian. No name, just the Jeffersonian as far as the writer of the article. And uh, the headline reads, Two Ohio men say they encountered Bigfoot-like creature at Salt Fork State Park. It just... It was just a leisurely walk in the woods, one they've done many times, but this time was different. This time, they spotted something that they say they'll never forget. It was January 12th when two Ohio men found themselves staring at what they say resembled Bigfoot or Sasquatch in Salt Fork State Park. Should we even be here, said Eric, one of the two men. Eric did not want his last name revealed. The figure had characteristics of Bigfoot, Harry upright, walking, ape-like creature that dwells in the wilderness and leaves footprints. Depictions often portray them as a missing link between humans and human ancestors or other great apes. Scientists have discounted the existence of Bigfoot, considering it to be a combination of folklore, misidentification, and hoax. Folklore traced the figure of Bigfoot to a combination of factors and sources, including folklore surrounding the European wild man figure. Folk belief among Native Americans and loggers and a cultural increase environmental concerns. Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Ohio Grassman, whatever you choose to call it, it really is all the same culture. Very big, hairy, and tall, averaging 6 to 8 feet, with footprints averaging from 13 to 17 inches long. It has been rumored to live in Ohio since the mid-1700s. It has also been rumored to live in, Ohio, in Ohio's largest state park, Salt Fork. Over 36 sightings have been reported to Don Keating of the Newcomerstown since the middle... 1980s. With the huge amount of alleged evidence coming from Salt Fork's borders, Keaton decided to host the annual Bigfoot Conference at Salt Fork starting in 2005, according to the Cambridge Guernsey County Visitors and Convention Bureau website. At Salt Fork State Park, there are three locations where Bigfoot is said to have been spotted. Morgan's Knob, where much of an episode of the Animal Planet television show Finding Bigfoot was filmed. Parker Road, also known as Buckeye Trail, and Bigfoot Ridge, the park's primitive campground where Kathy Lee Gifford and Hoda Coteby filmed an episode of the Today Show. Hmm. In 2012, the Salt Fork State Park was named as one of USA Today's top 10 squatchiest places. Seeing the creature was scary, said Nathan Gray of Winterest, of Winterset, a crossroads located just east of Salt Fork State Park. When I couldn't see it anymore, that was terrifying. A video that recreates the scene that includes the alleged original footage of the Bigfoot sighting has been posted to YouTube. So, yes, there is a video on here that you can take a look. And uh, I th I think I'm going to have to go to Salt Fork State Park and do some hiking when it gets a little warmer. I've never, I've been in Ohio, I've never been there. But I'll go there. Yeah, we'll check out Morgan's Knob and some of that other stuff and see what, see what goes on. So yes, the local headlines, uh, stuff flashing up on the shore, stuff in the forest, uh, strange things going on as always. So we're going to uh, do a quick boom here and come back. And I've got a couple of uh, Your Small Town Secrets from a couple of fellow podcasters who gave me some good suggestions of some smaller stories to look into for that segment. And we'll come back, do that, finish up the show and uh, call it a night. Okay, tonight's uh, Your Small Town Secret Stories both come from podcasting friends. Uh, the first one is from Kevin from Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Uh, we did a promo swap for him back in, uh, would be episode four of season one. 
which I believe is the West Pittston, Pennsylvania episode. So that's the second time this episode has been called back in this episode. That episode has been called back in this episode. And he sent me a little tweet. Uh, Defiance, Ohio had a dog man in the 1970s who would hit railroad ro workers over the head with a two-by-four. And I found a tiny little news blurb on that story from a CLEweekend.com. This is by uh, Zachariah Durr. And it says, The Werewolf of Defiance is an Ohio local legend that still haunts. Uh, pretty short, so I'm just going to read it out. Defiance, Ohio is a small town that reported a rash of werewolf sightings in the early 1970s. The Werewolf of Defiance is one of those local legends that sounds like the beginning of a classic horror movie. Two railway workers hooking up train cars late at night. One looks over to see a towering werewolf, Fangs Baird, who proceeds to attack the helpless victim. Hollywood as it might sound, that's the story that Ted Davis reported to police in 1972. The werewolf may have attacked him with a club rather than his claws, but otherwise the story sounds like so many other tall tales. Except that Davis wasn't the only one seeing dogmen in the wild. Another employee of the railroad also reported a wolfman stalking the rails. Then, a week later, a grocer driving home sees a lycanthrope in his headlights. With so many reports of hairy brutes coming into the station, local Defiance police open an investigation. A neighboring Toledo newspaper gets a hold of the story, and they have a link to a website that has uh, some scans of the original 72 newspaper article that you can check out. And suddenly, it's werewolf fever in defiance. While no werewolf was ever found, the legend has stuck to the town, and locals still talk about it to this day. Take a look at our horrifying recreation of that faithful encounter and hear the tale retold to decide for yourself if you believe in the werewolf of defiance. And I'll link to this in the show notes, of course. And there is a fun kind of recreation that you can watch. Uh, that is the Werewolf of Defiance, Ohio. And I didn't get the name of who sent this, but this is from the Are We Friends podcast. So thank you for this. And they wanted me to check out The Bunny Man of Clifton, Virginia, which I've heard of before. It's kind of a story that I think a lot of people have heard, but it doesn't have a, a, enough meat on its bones to be a full segment for the show. But he sent this to me. I'm like, that's perfect for this part of the show so i actually found an entry in jason offit's great book chasing american monsters which i've used for the show a couple times before it's just monster sightings and local legends of every state it goes by state and tells you where they're all at and he had a pretty good little thing on the bunny man so i just pulled a summary from that but that is my source for uh the couple of little little blurbs that I have here about the Bunny Man of Clifton, Virginia. On October 19, 1970, Robert Bennett, an army cadet, and his fiancée were on their way home from a football game. They decided to stop by a friend's house, and while still sitting in their car, when something smashed through the windshield. When Bennett got out to look, he saw a grown man dressed in a bunny suit. The Bunny Man shouted, You're on private property, and I have your tag number. Needless to say, Bennett got back in the car and sped away from the scene. They would later find a hatchet in the car and report it to police. So I believe that the hatchet was the thing that was thrown through the windshield. Ten days later, a guard on a construction site named Paul Phillips spotted a man dressed in a bunny costume with hatchet in hand. He was standing on a porch of one of the newly constructed homes, chopping away at one of the porch's beams with the hatchet. When Phillips approached him, the bunny man reportedly said, all you people seem to trespass around here. If you don't get out of here, I'll bust you in the head. Police investigated both men's reports and later found that there had been more, at least 50 more reported sightings. Of course, people still claim to see the Bunny Man today. So, yeah, I've heard about the Bunny Man, and it's uh, there's a lot you know you can look up on that. Is, is he had you know of course he's escaped from asylum in 1904, but then you know. A lot of stuff goes on about that. I'm sure that these two reports may be happening. I don't know if the guy escaped from the asylum or not, but wouldn't put it past like someone to just dress up in a bunny suit and torment people. But those have been your small town secrets for this week. Thanks, Kevin, uh, from Can't Make This Up History Podcast, and thanks at the guys from Are We Friends Podcast for those stories. And that's going to do it for this segment. 
And that is another episode in the books. Oh, there was one more little thing I wanted to share with everyone. So I was at work, I want to say like Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, uh, sitting there at my desk doing something. My phone is sitting on the desk right beside my keyboard. And probably like a lot of you, I've been getting a lot of robocalls that are just scams that are routing through different locations. So it pops up with a different city every time. And it was kind of funny. I'm sitting there and the phone starts ringing and I look at it and the robocall was from uh, Desert Center, California. So that was a weird, that was a weird synchronicity on my end this week. But I just wanted to share that little, little anecdote. But this has been a really fun episode, so I'm, I'm waiting for everyone to hear it. If you enjoy this episode, uh, please subscribe and leave a rating and a five-star review on uh, your podcatcher of choice, uh, especially iTunes if you're using that. But whatever you're using, leave a review or whatever whatever that system uses, if it uses stars or reviews or, I don't know, five kumquats out of ten, whatever it is. And uh, that really helps to show out on all of those like I said, you can go to, like I always say, you can go to uh, stscast.com. Uh, there, at the bottom of the main page, you can email me your small town secret. So if you've got like a Bigfoot legend, a, a true crime story, a personal experience of, like a, of anything, a haunting UFO, whatever, and you're in a small town and you want to share it, that's the easiest way to get it to me. You can also uh, get on me at social media. I am at stscast.com. Uh, both of that, that is for Twitter, that is for Facebook, uh, that is for Byte, if anyone is on Byte. And uh, Instagram is sdscast.gram. Also on the website is show notes to every episode. Uh, so that's the sources, that's pictures, that's links to all the books that I've used. If you also want to check all that out, you can find that all on that site, as well as uh, merch if you want a t-shirt or a mug, or a sticker, or any of that great fun stuff. It's all there at stscast.com. But thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for, this is the first show. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you go back and you listen to a bunch of the old episodes. If you're a, a longtime fan, thanks for uh, continuing to listen. There's a lot more of these coming in the future. But I'm going to get out of here for this episode. Next, next episode is episode five, so you know what that means. It's halfway through the season. That also means it's True Crime, Episode 3. Uh, going to talk about some a lot, a lot of wacky letter writing going on in that episode. So that's what you have to look forward to for Episode 3.05. Uh, until then, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. 
Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 